0: You were listening to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. At this hour, state transportation officials are blessing a new facility at the Kona Airport. The sixty million dollar project is a federal inspection center designed to process international travelers. It was a mandate from US Customs Border Protection that the state replace a temporary tent structure with something more permanent. We caught up with Ross Higashi, airport administrator between inter-island flights, to talk about why this is a big step in ensuring resilience in our airport system and what it might mean for the recovery of the Big Island's economy.
1: It was an international hub before, and on our about 2010 time frame, the economy, basically the economic meltdown, created some issues for international traffic. So basically, they said Japan Airlines basically said that we're no longer flying into to Alcona uh, anymore because it, they can't economically afford it. That being said, traffic started to return, and then they asked if we can open up that um, federal inspection station. So we did fly to D.C. to meet with officials there, asking them if they can reopen the temporary facility that we had built once before, and that they uh, allowed us, again, with the, um, the promise that we would build a permanent facility within five years. Officially going to open... I guess as far as construction is concerned, we're complete. The next step is to have uh, CBP mobilize and bring in their um, equipment that they they utilize for screening passengers internationally.
0: Japan has not opened up its borders quite yet, so at least this facility will be available once flights start to return. Exactly. And anything you can share about that because we are seeing the country start to lift some of the restrictions and we're still waiting for the governor to uh, make some announcement about that
1: yeah so things are getting better as far as I can see as as far as the virus is concerned so again this facility was something that we had planned for five years ago not knowing that some kind of a pandemic would be upon us however we do not we do know that Hawaii is resilient when it comes to travel and we know that we saw the pent up demand uh, from domestic, so we do see pent up demand from the international travelers returning to Hawaii. So this facility is definitely is needed. And again, more importantly, if something does happen in Honolulu where we do have a customs border protection facility, screening facility, this will serve as a second port of entry. So. In other words, if something happens in Honolulu where we have to shut that facility down, Kona Federal Inspection Station will serve as the uh, alternative or second port of entry, I should say.
0: Right, so you can divert any international flights to Big Island. Right,
1: Right. and then from there they can get screened and then they can go as a travel over to Honolulu or the rest of the neighbor islands via inter-island travel. Whether we had the pandemic or not, this was a five-year agreement that we made with CVP that we would build a permanent facility designed to their standards.
0: So mission accomplished?
1: Mission accomplished, $60 million, and it's uh, very much needed for the state of Hawaii. And if I can add, this was uh, one of the governor's main initiatives when I took uh, my position as a deputy director to make sure that this was accomplished during my time. And so I, I believe we met that that uh, request.
0: Okay, so uh, build it and they will come. <laughs> so uh, it's it's ready to go, and we're just waiting for those countries to lift restrictions or our country to give the green light.
1: Spot on. We will have a video that is pretty much like going to be shared amongst any news station. So we want to limit the amount of people, so instead we're going to prepare a video that we'll share with any media that wants to take a look at it. So if you want it, um, we can share that with you as well. Just let us know. And so
0: then the airlines, it's Japan Airlines and...
1: Hawaiian, Hawaiian Airlines. Those were the two that were serving before the pandemic hit. Gotcha. And it was actually starting to grow. Uh, and then because of the pandemic, it basically shut down, obviously, because of travel restrictions.
0: Right. Any uh, interest from Korea or anywhere else? Not Any- at this time. Okay. All right. But
1: I think if we, we build them, they will, will come. So it's gotcha. just a wait and see and Obviously, we want to be prepared to be able to accept the international traffic, and of course, uh, Kona is more on that side of leisure, leisure destination of choice. I, I believe it's a facility that was of, of great need, and again, we have to meet the deadline, December 2021.
0: That was Ross Higashi, Airports Administrator for the State Department of Transportation, talking to us about the dedication of the Federal Inspection Station at the Kona International Airport. Once international flights resume, it's expected that uh, uh, spending by the additional travelers will add to the county's coffers. Brennan's legacy will be honored at the University of Hawaii's home game this Saturday. The former Rainbow Warrior was a record-setting quarterback for the school, leading them to a 12-1 record and a Sugar Bowl berth in 2007.
2: Second and short, Brennan to throw again. Far side, it is caught by Gryce Mullen for a touchdown.
3: Brennan throws. That is complete. To Ross Dickerson, leaping for the end zone, touchdown! Brennan, complete to Bess,
0: touchdown Hawaii! Ah, exciting times. But Colt Brennan struggled to find the same level of success as a professional football player in the years after. In 2010, he was a passenger in a car crash on Hawaii Island that left him with a traumatic brain injury. The next decade saw him both giving back to the community through youth football camps and coaching and uh, wrapped up in a series of legal issues. Then on May 10th of this year, he was found unconscious at a California hotel after ingesting fentanyl. He died the following day at age 37. But Colt Brennan's family is hoping to find some triumph amid the tragedy. Earlier this year, uh, they started the, the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund to support local youth sports and mental health organizations. The conversations Russell Subiano spoke to Brennan's sister, Carrera Shea, about her brother's experience and about honoring his memory.
4: Earlier this year, I talked to a former San Francisco 49er, Jesse Sipolu and a local sports psychology consultant to get their perspective on the pressures and expectations of high profile athletes and how they dealt with it. From what you know of Colt's experience, how much did he feel that pressure and expectation?
5: I think he definitely felt it He just had a really good way of hiding it. But I think deep down, it was hard for him. You know, he definitely had nerves. I mean, I even remember watching him in some of his first games at UH. And I mean, he'd be throwing up on the sidelines before he'd run in for the play. You know, that was just his nerves. And then he did later admit that he actually smoked pot before every game you know, which disappointed his family in hearing that, but it also demonstrated what he had to do to deal with the anxiety for him. I think it just allowed him to focus and kind of tune out all the noise around him. So unfortunately, you know, that was his way of self-medicating to deal with it.
4: Prior to his play at the University of Hawaii, what kind of sports career did Colt have before that? Was he highly touted as a high school quarterback? Was he the team leader in Pop Warner days?
5: He definitely was in Pop Warner days. He was always the kid that had the most skills because he started right when he could at age eight. And we would joke that a lot of times he'd be he'd play both defense and offense because they needed him to do that. When he got to high school, he was at Modern Day and he was behind Matt Leinert. Clearly, Matt liner was the star and Colt was the backup quarterback. He didn't really get a chance to play until his senior year after Matt graduated. And he did well, but, you know, it was a short amount of time to prove himself. So my parents actually sent him to Worcester Academy in Massachusetts, which was a prep school. And he was able to play with their football program for an extra year. So that gave him some more time. And then from there, he he went to CU Boulder, and he unfortunately was there a short time when he got in trouble and he got kicked off. And his hopes of playing football were pretty diminished at that point. There were few and far between teams that, would, that were reaching out to offer him spots to play, and luckily June Jones was one of them.
4: We celebrated Mental Illness Awareness Week and World Mental Health Day earlier this month. It seems that our understanding of mental health issues and our sensitivity to them have increased in recent years. And we've seen high-performing athletes in the public eye withdraw from competition. We look back to Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles during the Olympics. What was Colt's experience in this area? Was he also dealing with some mental health issues that he didn't quite know how to process?
5: Yeah, unfortunately, I think it did start before he got to Hawaii. His experience of just getting into trouble when he was only 19 was actually pretty traumatic for him. And he would constantly say that that experience haunted him. And, you know, he claimed it was PTSD. He never got over that. And so he carried that with him to Hawaii. I feel like. One of the reasons why it affected him so much was it his character was attacked during the incident in Colorado, and he really wanted to prove himself. So I think he was able to accomplish that in Hawaii, and I think he enjoyed that opportunity to redeem himself, to feel good about himself again. But then unfortunately, I think when he didn't have a long career in the NFL, that shame started to come back that maybe he didn't live up to his expectations for the people of Hawaii and for our family. He was a very sensitive soul. So he felt things very deeply. And then on top of that, it was a car accident that included a major head injury. So we don't, you know, a lot of it was just the physical injury affecting his mental illness too.
4: What was your family's experience as Colt dealt with these issues?
5: You know, Cole just had such a good way of putting a big smile on his face and, and making us feel like he was happy and everything was okay. It was only like at moments he was kind of breaking down that he would express himself and what his pain was dealing with. And unfortunately it was in those moments when he was using drugs and alcohol. And so the the moment would be so irrational and so extreme that it would be hard for us to have a calm conversation about it with him, especially after the car accident. He was a little irrational and volatile with his emotions. I think that the head injury affected that, but we never gave up on him. I mean, it was a constant struggle that we fought with him for the whole 10 years. So we did the best we could, but looking back, I, I do feel like You know, even back when when he was dealing with his issues in Colorado, I feel like we could have handled that better. I feel like we could have gotten him help even then. And I feel like maybe if we had the conversation of what life would look like after football sooner, then it it wouldn't have been such a shock
4: for him. What more do you think can be done for high-profile athletes to help them work through issues like anxiety and depression, especially in the post-career era of their lives. Are there programs out there that you would recommend or is there more that you feel the public can do? Can they be more compassionate? Can they be more understanding?
5: I mean, certainly by just talking about it more now and making people aware of what the issues are for these athletes, I don't know what programs the NFL has has in place currently, But what comes to mind is certainly they have a team doctor and team physical therapist. Do they have a team psychologist that players can check in with regularly? Um, Or maybe it's almost mandated that they at least have a conversation with that type of professional because a lot of things go undiscussed with athletes, I think. And then after, once they're out of the system, Yeah, I think there should be some follow-up and some support and some programs in place dealing with these issues after they're on the team.
4: And can you share more about the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund and its purpose?
5: Yeah, so shortly after Colt passed away, our family was just receiving a lot of support and from the people of Hawaii mainly, and we were just shocked that he was remembered and revered still just because there had been some time that passed from when he was actually playing football. And then we had people reaching out like Barefoot League wanting to do a memorial t-shirt in honor of him. And they wanted to send the proceeds to our family. So we just thought it was a great opportunity to create a legacy for Colt, to try and do something good out of this tragedy. And Colt loved giving back to the community. He, you know, was always volunteering. I use sports programs. And so that's one area we'd like to help support. Obviously UH or UH athletics in general is a big one as well. And and then we just wanna try and do some good in bringing more awareness to mental illness and addiction and support those organizations that provide
4: resources. That's great. I'm glad that you'll continue to remain in our consciousness. I never got the chance to meet him, but I did see him coaching and he was here a lot. He spent a lot of time here, so I I could see I could see his love for the state through his actions. The University of Hawaii will be honoring Colts' legacy on October 23rd. What can you tell us about Colts' love of Hawaii? What do you think he would say to the crowd if he were able to attend that game?
5: Oh. He would just want to thank the people of Hawaii. I mean, he was so appreciative to get that opportunity to come there and play and I just think it was such a mutual love for him and the fans. And he, he just embraced the culture. And I think he just really appreciated the fact that people loved him despite what maybe baggage he had. They were willing to give him a second chance and overlook that. And he felt like he was part of a big family. And that was really personal for him. And it was personal for our family too. I mean, we, I spent a ton of time in Hawaii following his games, going to Aloha stadium. And those were some of the best times of our life too, for our family. So we also wanna take the opportunity to thank everyone in Hawaii, but he would he would be really appreciative. And I think he'd be shocked of how much love there is still there for him. I think he'll be proud of that.
0: And that was Cole Brennan's sister, Carrera Shea, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Shea says her family was originally not planning to attend the UH game this weekend, but after Mayor Rick Blandiardi modified attendance restrictions, they will be there to celebrate Brennan's memory. She also says the public will be invited to a paddle-out memorial for her brother at a time in the future when it's safer for crowds to gather. For more information on the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund, visit the conversation page of our website, Hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
2: Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. proservice.com/slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634.
6: HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, jobs.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community with a reimagination of its antiquity and the body gallery, featuring a new soundsuit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: Lucilla Beats Reality Check looks uh, an overhaul underway at the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Good morning.
3: Hey, thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, so gosh, who knew that this was, uh, was happening?
3: Yeah, I kind of flew under the radar this year, but uh, this big reorganization of OHA uh, really all started back in. April. Uh, that's when CEO Sylvia Hussey uh, first proposed it to the board of trustees and they approved it over the summer. And she told me yesterday that essentially what this uh, does, it's it's looking to reduce the number of paid positions at OHA and um, her office is looking at controlling spending and getting more of that funding to grant positions. However, That means that 43 employees had their positions eliminated. Now, they were all given the opportunity to reapply to new positions that Hussey created under this reorganization of the office. Uh, But I've been told that a few left because they felt they couldn't meet the new qualifications required of those new positions.
0: That's a huge number, 43. It
3: is. It's it's more than thirty percent of uh, OHA's current, you know, full-time staff, and it, it, it was a really big overhaul for the office. Pretty much every part of OHA was touched. Particularly, uh, their advocacy functions and compliance and community engagement—that's where some of most of the change occurred. You know, and depending on who you are, you could look at it. Uh, at different ways. hussies maintained that this was the right decision for OHA at this time. She's trying to reposition them to better advocate for uh, you know better housing, better health, uh, better economic stability for Native Hawaiians. That is OHA's mission after all. Um, and you you know with a new CEO of course, always, comes uh, change, but there has been some pushback from uh, current OHA staff and also some former staffers who left this year.
0: Well, you know, they have had uh, a number of uh, critical audits, uh, and, uh, you know, there were questions raised uh, by the state uh, lawmakers, you know, about uh, spending, uh, you know, so how much of, you know, those audits maybe had a hand in this?
3: It's true, Ojo's faced a lot of criticism in recent years. In 2018, there was that critical audit that came out on... you know, potentially unfair grant practices and misspending in the office and in the board of trustees. Uh, and a couple of years ago, they got into that scuffle with Lascondo Condo over the LLCs, and there's the ongoing lawsuit. But, uh, you know, I've been told by staff that they've done a lot to, you know, kind of shape up their financial reporting and get OHA going on an upward trajectory. And they've really cleaned up the house a lot. And some of the worry is that, you have all these staff departing this year it might mean that oha could start backsliding but also because of all the criticism the administration has been trying to control spending like i said uh, the new budget the board of trustees approved over the summer it uh, cuts down on that by about a million and a half a year oha's biggest expense used to be on its uh, personnel and staff and fringe benefits now they want to put more of that money toward grant funding to uh, get money to organizations that you know put forward housing initiatives that help with substance abuse the arts health organizations and things like that
0: so they are actively then uh, recruiting for those open positions now
3: Yeah, they've got at least 29 job postings on their website and you know i do need to mention that not all of those were a result of the reorganization these some of these are vacancies from you know months ago and some even from last year when they were looking for staff Uh, but the bottom line is that oh is in a position where they're you know lacking a lot of staff and you know they need the help Uh, leadership told me yesterday that's already impacting some of their operations That to contract out some activities, and uh, you know, it's going to affect their advocacy once the legislative session rolls around in January. That's
0: right, because there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done, um, you know, before they they start the new session. Uh, So, yeah, we'll just see how this plays out and how it affects uh, the beneficiaries.
3: Yep. Uh, the board of trustees gave them a end-of-year deadline to finish the reorg, but they expect it to go into next year, and the employees have until December 30th to make a decision on whether or not they want to stay or uh, uh, leave or apply for a new position. Okay,
0: and we'll see if uh, OHA becomes leaner and meaner. <laughs> Thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. October is Filipino History Month, and to highlight the contribution to our Hawaii, Hawaii Ne, a new book highlighting our community treasures has just been released. The title is HIAS, which means treasures in Tagalog. It is thanks to Philam Courier, the oldest publication serving the Filipino community, and it represents 30 years of its cover stories. The book was the brainchild of Phil Am's Mary Cordero. It highlights 60 community leaders, many who came from humble beginnings and through hard work and perseverance rose to the top. Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Simeon Koba and Governor Ben Cayetano are among the treasured role models, as are a string of civil rights activists and public servants and beauty queens. Mila Ka'aunui, along with co-editor Stephanie Costillo, completed Cordero's vision, updating a collection of who's who in spite of their own personal health challenges. Their efforts help to feed an upcoming generation who Ka'aunui says are hungry for heroes. You see a lot of Filipinos who have done well, and yet they're
6: invisible. That's how I look at it. You know, they're not known. There's a lot of young Filipinos who who are hungry for heroes, but they don't know that there's someone someone like Akoba, you know, who's one of the greatest. I mean, she's such a good, prolific jury. And there's um, Ben Cayetano. You know, And then Anacleto Alcantara, you know, his story is just so inspiring. Share with our listeners what his story is about. Well, he started out as a janitor here. He he came from a very poor farming family in the Philippines, and he earned a scholarship at the Mapua Institute of Technology in Manila where he graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering. When he came here, in spite of the fact that he was highly educated and trained, he couldn't get a job. It was pretty much in line with his his, uh, education. He started as a janitor, but then... He worked his way up, and then finally he was employed and was found to be very, very, very proficient. Charles Cook, Executive Secretary of Hawaii Contractors Licensing Board, convinced him to get his own contractor license. He founded Group Builders, which was listed by Hawaii business, to be among, this Hawaii business to be among the top 250 largest companies in Hawaii and Filipino-owned. And the wonderful thing about it is that he employs a lot of Filipino Filipinos. Some are engineers and some are, uh, you know, just um, very proficient in their their skills. uh, Then he is also known as uh, number 13 in the building industry, top 25 contractors nationwide. His company ranks 261 among the top 600 specialty contractors in the U.S., He was awarded as one of Hawaii's best places to work in 2008 and 2009. We're extremely proud about Clito Alcantara. And another one, too, is um, Eddie Flores, you know, the owner of L&L Drive-In.
0: You're familiar with him? Yes, everybody knows. (laughs) Eddie. Eddie. (laughs) Yeah, so share share with our listeners. I mean, you know, what what, what was his story? Well, he, he... Actually, Eddie came from.
6: He grew up in Hong Kong, and uh, you know he uh, he he used to wear red uh, red socks. He was very very um, colorful, <laughs> colorful, colorful guy. You know, uh, they used to you know. So he was he act, started poor. You know, his Filipino father uh, and. And was a musician who jammed to the beat of the Orient um, in, in Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. But then, at one some point in time uh, in their life, uh, in their lives, uh, Eduardo Fort Flores Sr., the father, lost his job, and so he decided to bring his whole family to Hawaii. So when they arrived in Hawaii in 1962, with only in, uh, a sixth-grade education, no other skills but his musical talent. He, uh, he couldn't find a job, so all of a sudden, he became an unskilled janitor, and Eddie also decided to work his way up as a janitor. The the Flores family became, became completely poor in Hawaii. Eddie remembers living on Liliha Street, where four families live in one house like sardines. Real hardship was how Eddie described his little life in the early years, but somehow they survived, and so that's where he started. Poor janitor from the li- living in Eliha.
0: These stories that you highlight, I mean, it's a lot of rags to riches. You know, rags it's about rich, yes. perseverance. Started out in very humble beginnings, yes. and they just made themselves successful through their hard work.
6: Yes, yes, hard work, and they, have, they had a dream. You know, they they, they were very faithful to. to the, they, they just were dedicated to, and very committed to get their dream realized and so it's really most of the stories are rugs reachers stories
0: yeah i mean i I think of you know governor ben cayetano and and you know how i believe he used to pump gas over there at the Punahou uh, auto uh, facility there off king street (laughs) he worked hard became an attorney uh, became the governor
6: and we also have the stories of people who were activists you know people who try to change, make a change in society, uh, like Dean Aligado, you know. Yes. I like his story. He, he was a very, he was an advocate. He advocated for social justice. Anytime there's um, any kind of social injustice, he's there, unfortunately, he passed away. I
0: used to do stories with him, so yes, he was uh, very passionate about his causes.
6: Yes, very, very passionate, definitely, yes. Yeah.
0: You know, you have people like Amy Agbiani. You know, in her oh, work yes. through the University of Hawaii. One. Oh, my God.
6: Amy, she's still going. She's still going strong. She's never never quit. She doesn't quit.
0: One of the uh, people that you highlighted worked in the city's finance department uh, when I covered city hall as a city hall reporter, Toyare.
6: Toyare, yes. She's another one, too. She's a, a really strong community leader well-respected in the Filipino community. Linda Aquino, you know her. Yes. Oh, my gosh. She's just amazing.
0: And many people featured in this book had a a hand in making sure that the Filipino Community Center was built.
6: Yes. And the and Casamina and Eddie Flores, both of them had a hand. They were the trailblazers. They really worked hard, and they stayed with it, stayed with the project until it got done. It was not just a, a dream that they talked about, but they really got it done. You know, it was really great.
0: Tell us about the younger role models that are featured in this book. Let me tell you about Jeff, the
6: one who wrote the foreword. He's very young. He graduated from the UH with a master's in with a degree. And he was also uh, appointed as a U.H. regent, born in Bacaray, Locos North, the Philippines, and grew up in the Kalihi district of Honolulu. He attended Farrington High School and the University of Hawaii. He, he ran a youth prog- bike project at Honolulu, Kalihi Valley International Bike Exchange. And he did wor- he worked at Kukua Kalihi Valley Comprehensive Family Service. He's most passionate about intergenerational programs that address health and economic justice through faith, days and spiritual traditions. He's really um one of the up and coming, you know, young leaders from the Filipino community. He says, you know, I'm gonna quote him, mm-hmm. this is what he said in the foreword. He asks an invitation from our elders not to simply lecture our youth, but to have an intergenerational relationship based on the desire to grow the future leaders of our Filipino community. Perhaps in a couple of years, there will be a second edition of CIAS, made up of younger people who were inspired by the lessons of the last 30 years, as articulated by over 60 people profiled in this book. To be Filipino in these times requires us to dig deep into our roots and to know who we are and what we stand for, to live with the audacity and vulnerability demonstrated so powerfully by those in this book. Perhaps the greatest gift of the willingness to take risks for our youth to imagine without fear, to do what has not yet been done, and to face the uncertain future with a joy and deep gratitude that though we may be the first, we are never alone. There has never been a better time to be Filipino than now. It's such a a beautiful quote, (laughs) crying
0: now. Yeah, it is powerful. It's so emotional for them so powerful. po Jeffrey Asito for that heartfelt forward in that book. He asks. To purchase a copy of the book, you should contact the Phil M Courier, which we should mention marks its 34th, 34th anniversary next month. Plans are to distribute copies of the book Saturday, October 23rd at the Filipino Community Center from 1 to 5, and later that evening from 6 to 9 at the Pacific Club.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from T. Oki Trading, featuring Toto Toilets and Jacuzzi and Bullfrog Hot Tubs and Swim Spas. Serving Hawaii for 40 years. More information by calling
3: 834-2722. Aloha, this is Derek Malama, and after 19 years on the air, I'm passing along the reins of Kani Kapila Sunday, it's been an honor to share all of this wonderful Hawaiian music with you. But the good news is that Louise K. King Lanzalotti will be stepping in to host the show. So keep listening every Sunday afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m.
2: right here on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company committed to supporting the community, supporting local nonprofits, including Aloha United Way. Learn more at auw.org.
0: I no, Revilla has plenty to celebrate. For one, she's the first OEV poet to win the National Poetry Series competition. Her collection, Ask the Brindled, was selected for publication out of more than 1,600 entries in this year's competition. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about the power of words and the role of poetry in fostering connection. Ravilla starts the
7: conversation off with her favorite poetic form. The sonnet is one of my favorite poetic forms. And there is a reason this poetic form has emerged again and again over the centuries. There is a reason why contemporary poets, not just white, heterosexual, cis men with property are writing sonnets. There is a reason why Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer, LGBTQIA folk women are writing sonnets because it's such a thinking form. The sonnet is an argument. You have to present an idea or an image in those first four lines, develop them. And then there's an octave where you must deepen or depart. And it's such a tight form of repetition and rhyme, 14 lines. And there really is no hiding in a sonnet. I love the form because it really does push you to be honest while making music. And I find that challenge to be illuminating for myself.
8: And are you someone who has gravitated towards form throughout your poetic career? Or did you find the sonnet as your primary vehicle with which to explore a more structured form of language?
7: I am Mo' on both sides of my family. It's a cultural identity that I inherit. And because of that, I gravitate to shape-shifting. So I like to experiment. I like to play. And I think received forms get a bad rap because of constraints, but it's just more things to play with and wrap yourself around. Kino. Your black inscriptions cite a whose feathered wingspan, nighttime eyes, and punishing beak comprise mo'oku With my oiled hands, I greet her, with hungering for mo'opuna. Mai, she says, reciting from your thigh. Mai, mai e'ai. I have traveled from Maui, a lizard, mesmerized by dreams of ohia and daikane, lizard filled with smoke. Arrived, I eat, transforming in the forest of your grandmother's memory. From lizard, woman, dreaming, licking. Tattoo, permission, land, skin, traveling the night of your Kino to sleep your thighs. Ho'au, ho'au, and wake.
8: When you read the poem, Kino, you put this incredible pause, this momentous pause, between lizard and woman, when you think of those two forms, how do they exist together? Do you find that you take on different forms based upon the space you're in and the needs that are asked of you?
7: For me, there's no separation. There are different times where the mole in me will speak louder and there are times when the wahine in me will speak louder, but they're in the same body. For Oivi, we have three people, right? We have one people to connect us to our akua and our ancestors, one people to connect us to our presence, and then another people to connect us to our future and our futurity, to our mo'opuna. And it's all in the same kino, it's all in the same body. There are different pilina, there are different ways of relating, there are different ways of being and making connections and understanding stories, making stories, but they're in the same kino. It's a relationship more than a separation for sure. X is a verb. When the torch is more crackling pit of skulls and carrying it means Waikiki at two in the morning, grateful my love, the pitiful karaoke pink wash and standing room only, we suffered together. Who said ex-lovers shouldn't hook each other by the bra and talk? Like which Venus would be next to make house and tangle with Gemini law? Who with the horns, forward thinking, bright with faith, will grope in darkness and make me a shape at last? Anything but an edge to leap from. Cliff incarnate. We spent months sharing ghosts, our marrow mistaken for medicine. But about this morning, you still haunt me. I still smell burning skin.
8: wonder, since you have these two poems, both of which are talking about shape-making, what do you see as the different perspective between them?
7: Kino was written in the throes of early romantic love. X is a verb was written after a romantic relationship ended, but our friendship was still, is still, very much intact. And these two sonnets for me point to the different ways aloha emerges in our life. Kino and X is a verb, I hope, celebrate the fact that aloha is not straight, that there is more to aloha than a couple centric heteronormative script. You know, so what happens before romantic love, after romantic love, alongside it? And my forthcoming book, Ask the Brindled, is about aloha and not coconut bra aloha, not I just got laid aloha, not that cheap thing sensationalized in hotel lobbies and all you can drink, catamaran, sunset sales in Waikiki. Ask the Brindled, these sonnets are committed to aloha aina as aina-based intergenerational and complex. So it's not a surprise that shapeshifters like Mo'o haunt and thrive in this book. So for me, Kino was a way to document that even romantic love brings in our kupuna. Even romantic love, especially romantic love, brings in our aina. And X as a verb testifies to the beauty of friendship that survives, shapeshifts, evolves out of a romantic relationship that has ended. All these things are connected. And the sonnet for me is is such a great way to acknowledge that expansiveness of aloha.
8: Now, to get to other particular vocabulary in these poems, <laughs> there are two words... That we will be unable to air on our live broadcast because the Federal Communications Commission prohibits us from airing certain language. The 1978 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Federal Communications versus the Pacifica Foundation gave the U.S. government the power to regulate language, certain words, due to indecency. Do you think that there is language that can be indecent? Indecent.
7: For whom, you know, what kind of language, what kind of speaker is being centered there as the unspoken default? You know, I, for example, identify as gay, as a lesbian, with pride. And I also use the term queer. Now, for some LGBTQ plus elders, the word queer conjures up real life memories of violence, harassment and shame. For others in the community, the word queer is reclaimed every day as a way to forge a community identity, as a mark of pride, even as a way to heal. Now for non-LGBTQ plus folk, the word queer is indecent because it means for them something deviant, something perverse, a thing removed from humanity. And there's an important difference between a word that has been used as a slur, an object of violence from the outside and that same word being embraced, rerooted, rerouted by people inside the community as a way toward better language, a way toward better names that we choose. Language is a tool and you know, just like any tool, it matters how how you use it. Leanne Simpson is one of my favorite people in the entire world. And for everyone out there, read everything you can by Leanne Simpson. But in one of her more recent works, as we have always done, she argues, the opposite of dispossession is not possession, it's connection. And my mind was blown. What a beautiful paradigm shift, that that appetite we've been trained into for opposites. It's not possession. It's look at the ways we've been dispossessed of each other. Look at the ways we've been told to remove ourselves from each other. And let's get back to earning each other back. And I feel like as the poet, there are so many ways to connect And I have this way, poetry and education. And I feel that if there is a gay Hawaiian girl who can't come out yet for any number of reasons, maybe the same reasons I couldn't, and she picks up my book and she reads one poem and feels less alone. I did something good and not just for me, or my ego, that's not what this is about. I did something for our Lahui. because the more there are of us standing in aloha and true, aina-based, complex aloha, the stronger we all are. And I think that poetry combats isolation. When you feel less alone, you love fearlessly, and we need more of that. My name is Noori Villa. I am an Oivi, queer, poet, and educator. I was born and raised on the island of Maui, and I currently live and love in Palolo Valley on the island of O'ahu. To all my mo'o siblings, to all my sly siblings, and if you've read Hanani K's Sons, you know who I mean. And to all my queer Oivi Wahine, I see you and I believe you. Mahalo.
0: Poet No'u Revilla in conversation with HPR Savannah Harriman Pope. Revilla's collection, Ask the Brindled, will be out in 2022. To hear Revilla's full interview, including her experience with censorship and more on the writers who inspired her work, check out the conversation page later today. That's at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
7: We sing this to you tonight. Thank you for taking credit for what's happening here. Thank you.
0: That is it for now. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Honolulu Zoo Director following a suspected COVID-related death of our only male lion. Could vaccinations be in the future for our zoo animals? Got feedback? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.